It's good to be here this morning. Hey, following up on something Mark said uh, related to the series we're in in the Psalms, we'll be in Psalm 91 this morning. You can open your app or open your Bible there. We'll be there in just a second. But I do want to mention, which I've mentioned before, uh, in going through the Psalms, one of the, the goals or one of the guiding influences on what Psalms we cover and what we don't, there's a couple. One is to get the breadth of the themes and the topics that you see in the Psalms, and basically sort of covers all of life, so we're trying to get that, that wide spectrum of themes that are addressed in the book of Psalms. But another thing is this, we've done several messages on the past in a variety of the Psalms. So for instance, if you haven't caught on yet, Psalm 103 is one of Mark's favorite Psalms. And so Mark has taught Psalm 103 in a series we did, I don't know, a year or two ago. So if there's a psalm that you're wanting to follow up or you want to hear a message on, if you go to the church website and you go to the sermons and you go to scripture, it'll show every psalm that there's a recording on. So there's quite a few that we haven't done in this series, and that's because they've already been taught. They were taught prior. So you can check that out, and I would encourage you to. With that, uh, psalm 91 is where we're going to park this morning. I'll read the psalm, and we'll do an introduction from there, and then we'll go through, break the psalm down as we have all along. So uh, join with me if you like uh, reading along. This is from the ESV. Psalm 91, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. The Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways." On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. God speaking in these last verses. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Psalm 91. We do not know the author of Psalm 91. We don't know the circumstances under which it was written, but it's a favorite for many people because it is one of the most confidence, confidence and confidence-inspiring songs in all of the book of Psalms. It's a great place to hang out if you're in a time or a stage of life where there are trials, there are temptations, or you don't know which end is up. Psalm 91 is a great place to hang out. And I think it's probably because of this um, 
even if you've never read Psalm 91 before, if you remember the temptation account, Satan and Jesus in Matthew 4, you probably recognize the quote there from Psalm 91. You remember in the temptation account, Satan comes up to Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness, hasn't eaten anything, and so the temptation is turn these stones into bread. You're hungry, I know that. Turn your stones into bread. And you remember how Jesus responds to Satan's temptation. He quotes Deuteronomy, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Satan's quick, he's a quick study, and so his temptation follows up. He quotes scripture, and he quotes Psalm 91. And quoting scripture out of context, he's inviting Jesus from a psalm that is so expressive of confidence in God. He uses that song and that confidence to try and get Jesus to sin. So we know Satan, Satan goes to church, Satan knows the Bible, and he tries to use that out of Psalm 91 because it is such a confidence builder. He thinks that's something that Jesus might fall for. He, of course, did not. Uh, this is a little like the opening to Psalm 90. You've got this great, you got this great introduction. You remember Psalm 90, uh, Lord, you've been our dwelling place from every generation. You have this great opening statement. And if you've got the same thing here in Psalm 90, it's kind of, uh, it's a heading, it's a general statement, verse 1. And then it's immediately followed by verse 2, which is this personal attachment to the reality of verse 1. So, you and I could make a statement about something as a fact, and it wouldn't mean that we believe it or that we hold it or that it's personal to us. But the psalmist starts by making this great declaration, we'll look at it in just a second, but then he follows up immediately to say that general truth that I'm speaking is personal to me. So it's not just that God's available to help, he's my God and my help, and of course that's where the psalm will flow from there. Alan Ross's summary goes like this, declaring the truth that there is security in taking refuge in God, the psalmist encourages his own soul that he will be delivered from the various and fearful attacks of the wicked because the Lord has given his angels charge over him and vowed to deliver him because he believed. And guys, without taking anything away from what the song says, I do want to qualify again. We'll qualify this at the end again. If we read scriptures that are addressed under the Old Covenant with Old Covenant expectations, and we try and bring a New Covenant understanding into them, we can often be disappointed. And so this song gives basically this unqualified sense that when I'm in trouble, God will come in and whatever the trouble is, he will deliver me out of that trouble in the moment. And for the psalmist, Remember, we've talked about this repeatedly, but it bears repeating again. For the psalmist, his hope is long life in the land of promise with material blessing and prosperity and, and freedom, basically, to live that out before God, before Yahweh, with his family and, and the family of faith, which was the nation. So we're reading a song that with unqualified aspects says, God will come in and deliver me from this thing. We live in a time and under a covenant in which we have better promises, but they are of an eternal nature. And so Jesus has promised us under this new covenant, he's promised us not deliverance from everything, he's promised us trials and tribulation on top of the challenges that are simply part and parcel of life on planet Earth. So when we hear this, 
it'll sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, and maybe I am at one level, but the song should encourage us to have a level of confidence in God, whatever's going on in life, period. But it's the expectation of what deliverance looks like. So, you know, we, just during announcements, we're talking about Christians in the Dominican Republic that have been rained out. Guys, the email said uh, from Pastor Castillo, this was the biggest recorded amount of rain in the DR's history. I didn't even hear about this apart from their email. I didn't hear it in the news because of Israel and the Middle East. And the footage they showed, it's cars just being washed down the streets of the town. So these are Christians in the DR who are suffering just like all of their neighbors. And if I quote Psalm 90 and say, or 91, don't worry about it because God's going to deliver you from everything, they might be saying, I'm not feeling it, I'm not feeling the love. So we, wanna, we want to qualify this in the sense that we should, okay? Is God present for us in every way? Absolutely. We've got a promise in Romans 8, 28, which we'll, we'll go towards in the end, that whatever comes into your life, and guys, uh, if you've lived any length of time, you've suffered hardship, you've been disappointed, you've probably been betrayed, and that's true for all of us, and somehow, and our own sins, and somehow God turns all of that in a way that we can't see and we don't engineer, and somehow he turns those things around for our benefit, for our ultimate good. And a lot of that, we simply don't know what that looks like in time. You know, in eternity, when we stand before the Lord, we'll understand things there in that setting that we simply don't and can't right now. So on the song, we want the song to engender our confidence in God's keeping care. But ultimately for Christians, remember what happened to all the apostles but one? They were martyred. Jesus' letter to the church at Smyrna in Revelation 2 is, you're in prison, remain faithful because you're going to be killed in prison. I'm not delivering you. But I'll give you the crown of life because you're going to remain faithful to death. So we take all that into account as we think about this. We're in a different time than Psalm 91. Our confidence is in God, but ultimately that confidence has more to do with eternity in his presence. That if you lived, I picked up a hitchhiker one time, this is years ago, head west on I-70, and I kid you not, this guy was a character. What are you doing? You know, where are you going? I'm going to the mountains. Why are you going to the mountains? Uh, I'm going to escape the nuclear fallout, really. And, uh, okay, so he, he assumed the USSR and the U.S. would get into a shooting match and there'd be nuclear fallout everywhere. And I said, okay, so let me just ask you, so you survived the nuclear fallout, what then? He's like, what do you mean? I said, well, you die anyway. If you live, live 40 years more, 50 years, you die. Then what? So for us guys, the problems during our life on planet Earth, they're the little ones. The big problems that we need to be delivered from are sin and death and Satan. And so those are the big rocks that we ultimately look to. Jesus has delivered us from sin and its penalty and its power, from Satan and from death itself. So those are the big rocks that we keep in view when we think about what does this look like in my life? And if God's present for me in my time of trouble, why isn't he saving me out of this trouble? I can't answer that. But I know ultimately the big rocks are covered and Christ is still our hiding place and God is still a very present help and a refuge when we need it. So confidence in God's
presence with us, willingness to help us, but also this allowance that we don't know always what that's going to look like for us in our situation or setting, okay? Okay, look at verses 1 and 2. The psalmist opens with that general truth, those who make the Lord their means of shelter, verse 1, and then 2, he makes plain that this is personally true for him. So he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, almost certainly there a reference to either the tent where the Ark of the Covenant was located or later the temple, and the thought would be here, uh, the, the one who, if you weren't the priest, you couldn't go into the tabernacle, right, or the temple, but this is the guy who's hanging out where God is. So either physically he's hanging out as a worshiper where, God's, uh, where the ark is, but also his heart's desire simply to be where God is. So it's that person, he says, the one for whom God's home is his home. He wants to be where God is. This is the guy he's talking about. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. So... He's going to give here on the opening, you'll see numbers repeated here, four different titles or names for God, then four different terms for describing God's role as his defense or his hiding place. Look there at verses 1 and 2. Uh, God is called Most High. This in Hebrew, it's Elyon. He's the Almighty, that's Shaddai. He's Lord, all caps, so that's he's the Eternal One. He's the Covenant God. And God, that last in English, G-O-D, is Elohim. He's the God above all other gods. So the psalmist knows God to be the highest being, the most powerful provider, the self-existent one who entered into covenant relationship with Israel. He's God over all gods, and that's the psalmist's God. That's his hope for help. The one the psalmist trusts is described in four different ways as his defense. So He's a shelter, so this is a place I go and I hide. I'm protected because I go someplace and I'm hidden from danger. I love this second one. This is probably my favorite. He says he's a shadow, uh, will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Think of this. If you were walking along the sidewalk on a sunny day, and let's say the sun is behind you, you would see your shadow on the ground in front of you. But if you were walking along and your shadow faded away to nothing by a bigger shadow, you would know a cloud came between the sun and me. So there's, I'm under a cloud. And the thought here would be that even if I can't turn around and see him, God's presence in my life, his protecting influence, he's, he's above me and he's behind me and I know he's there because I'm, I'm under his shadow. So even if I'm not turning around and I can't see him, his presence is like the cloud. It's above me. He's behind me and above me as this protecting influence. It's a little bit like the theme of the hen that gathers chicks under its wings too. He's above me and he's behind me and he's there to protect me. So it's like I'm walking in his shadow. Uh, he's a refuge, again, a place of shelter. And he's a fortress, um, you, you know, in the Middle Ages, but, but all the way back really to the earliest antiquities. If you built a city, where did you build it? You built it on a hill. And why did you build it on a hill? Because if an army came, it's harder for them to go uphill than it is straight over or downhill. So you build on a hill. And what do you do for your defense on the hill? You put a big wall up. And for the same reason, you put a big wall up. That's the thought here. 
that God's my fortress. So he's the high hill and he's the castle on top of the high hill. I'm doubly protected by God and his presence as my fortress. And then a look at, so, so four names for God, four ways God is there to protect or provide for me. And then verse 2, four times the psalmist says that that God is my trust, my hope's in him. So look at, um, he says, uh, my, God, or my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So everything now that he said generally is true for him personally. And he says, my, 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 my. Sometimes uh, it's helpful to look, this comes up in Psalm 91 later, look at the pronouns that are being used because the pronouns often determine who's, well, they do, who's speaking and who's on first and what's going on. So he's saying the general statement he made in verse one is true and he's saying it four different ways in verse two. He doesn't just say, that's my God, it's four times, my, 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 my. You'll see this again later in verse 14. So one of the questions for us always on application is what the psalmist is saying, is that true for me? So I ask myself, is God my fortress? Is God my trust? Can I say with the psalmist, God is my refuge? And really, we want to say this two different ways. We want to say this in an ultimate way. Have I trusted Christ for salvation? Is Christ and Christ alone my hope for salvation from the penalty due my sin? Is Christ my Savior, we would say today? Personally, is that true? But also this, when trouble hits your life, the unexpected, the bottom falls out, emotional, financial, whatever it is, whatever that looks like, what do we do? What's our response? Because usually your response is telling you what your confidence is in. The bottom falls out, what do I do? So the psalmist says, I'm going to be committed to God, the one who's caring for me. He's my commitment. He's my trust, my fortress, my refuge. What's our first instinct or response when trouble falls out for us? That's a pretty good indicator of who or what our thought of a refuge or a place of help is. What's my first response? You can ask yourself that. There's great value in rehearsing this too. He's saying to himself that God is these things for me. Uh, one of the things I do occasionally, and you see this in Psalms especially, psalmists will speak to their own soul uh, do you guys ever do this? So if I'm, if I'm uh, struggling, sometimes what I will do is I don't just pray. I want to pray, but I don't just pray. I say out loud what's true. I speak to my soul. I'm instructing myself. You see this in Psalms. I'm instructing myself. So I will say, Father, I know I'm your son, and I know I have your spirit, and I know my sins are covered, and it doesn't matter what I'm feeling right now. I know these things are objectively true. And telling myself the truth, which the psalmist did here, is a way of instructing myself again. And praying quietly is fine. We're praying to God the Father. It's not like there's anything amiss on that. But speaking out loud those truths is beneficial to us in a way that silent prayer is not. And you do see this modeled throughout the scriptures. So if I'm, if I'm hit upside and I don't know what's going on, I could quote things from the Bible to myself, and I could say things like, Lord, thank you that there's uh, nothing going on in my life that you haven't caused or allowed. 
You can always come to Romans 8, 28. You can say, Lord, thank you that you're using this thing too for my good. I don't know what that looks like, but I trust that's the truth. It gives confidence to us when other things are falling apart. I'm speaking to my own soul as the psalmist did. He said, I will say. This is what he says. So our emotions lead us astray. I'm instructing my emotions. I'm instructing my mind and my soul. So in verses 1 and 2, the psalmist describes God and his own faith. And then in verse 3 and following, he begins applying the song. And he just says, to you. And guys, you is anyone. You is anyone. So he said this general truth, God's a refuge. God's my refuge. And now he starts turning out and he says, to you. So if you know God is your refuge, you can make God your refuge, and what he's saying will be true for you too. So this is all outward directed at this point, getting at verse 3. Today, since God has made himself known through the incarnation, we can talk about this in even more personal ways. So not only is Yahweh my shelter, but Jesus is my good shepherd. That's intimate, isn't it? You know, the good shepherd, John tends this well-known passage, he calls his own by name. He knows your name, and he calls you, and you follow him. And this is personal, this shepherd and the sheep relationship, John 10. Not only is the Lord my refuge, but Jesus, who has conquered sin, death, and Satan. Uh, Matthew 28, 20 and Hebrews 13 will never leave us and never forsake us. That's something we can remind ourselves of. Lord, whatever's going on, thank you that you're with me in this. Show me how to get through it. What, what is your presence in me? What do you want me to do? Now look at verses 3 through 13, and I'm going to divide this guy's three ways, verses 3 through 6, 7 through 10, and then 11 through 13. So, so look at verse 3. He will deliver, so the pronouns change you. If you'll do what the psalmist did, this is what God will do for you. He will deliver you. He will cover you. He's a shield and buckler. You won't be afraid. So 3 through 6, the psalmist lists six dangers that God will deliver them from. Six dangers. So he says snares, and basically where this is going, he's saying 24-7, whether you're aware of the danger or you're ignorant, whatever it is, 24-7, God has it. God's your defense, he's your refuge, no matter when it happens and no matter from what direction it happens. So he says from snare, so think about this, a snare is a hole in the ground, or it's a snare like you catch a rabbit in. It's hidden. God will save you. He'll keep you from hidden dangers. A pestilence or disease, we would say. A terrors by night or dangers by day. So doesn't matter what time of day the danger comes up, God is there for you. Diseases in the night, destructions that come in the daytime. So six different ways he's saying Things that you're aware of, things that you aren't aware of. Things that happen in the daytime, things that happen in the nighttime. God has your back no matter when it is or what it is. God's a refuge from dangers that are more plain, things that occur in the light of day or things that occur in the dark, things that we are ignorant of. No matter the direction the danger comes from, the time of day, God says he will deliver the one trusting in him. Uh, look at what it says of God will. God will. God will deliver you. So what's the threat? God will deliver you from the threat. The second thing is, he will hide you under his own wings. So remember, the shadow is God's above me and behind me, and I'm under his shadow. His 
protecting presences above and behind me. And that's like this too. It's like the chicken. Remember, this is what Jesus said in Luke's gospel uh, when Jerusalem rejected him. He said, I would have collected you like a hen collects chicks. You'd have been under my wings. That's a common theme in scripture as well. Then he says he'll also be like a shield. And he uses two different kinds of shields here. A shield and a buckler. And the thought would be like this. Uh, the shield, if you've seen any old uh, movies, maybe, I don't remember if this would be in Ben-Hur or Ten Commandments, but back in the day, the Roman soldiers, they had big shields. And those shields were big enough they could hide behind. And so, you know, if you approached an enemy and you were in your ranks, the guys up front put the shield down vertical, the guys behind put shields up horizontal, and the arrows and the missiles come and they bounce off. The shield was big enough you could hide behind it. But the buckler was a small shield that you carried on your arm. And so the thought is, on one hand, God will be that big shield you can get behind and hide from, from trouble, whatever it is. But the other thing is God is like a small shield on your arm that you can simply raise and deflect blows that are close and personal. So if you think of uh, Ephesians 6 where the Christians have spiritual armor, you know, the shield extinguishes the fiery darts. Well, it's something small and it's close at hand. So if it was a knife or a sword or an arrow, you have this small shield that's on your arm that you can raise and take off blows. So he's saying, if you need a lot of help, you need a place to hide behind, God's a big shield. If you need to simply divert or get rid of some smaller, closer, imminent threat, God's the small shield that you raise your arm and deflect that blow as well. So in all these ways, 24-7, light or dark, disease, famine, close, far, it doesn't matter. God is there to protect, he says. Look at verses 7 through 10. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand. This would be that thought that this is really bad, and I may be next. Uh, people are going down all around me. You know, I'm in the middle of a warfare or famine or pestilence, and everybody around me is dying, and I might be next. It's going on all around me. That's the thought. But he says, because you've made the Lord your dwelling place, the evil will not befall you. Uh, let me ask a question. Uh, most of you are old enough. What was our response in 2008 when the market fell out and you lost a third of your investments and your, your uh, retirement accounts? And if you were in the market, you lost about a 30%, about a third went down. What was our thought when that happened? H how did we respond? Or a little more recently, when COVID started coming through in waves, and think of all the things that were part of that, there was the, for some people, the real physical health issue it was, and of course lots of people died, the compromised especially died from COVID, and the lockdowns occur, and nobody knows who to trust and what the information is. What was our response in that? Was, were we fearful? You, you, because that's the setting here. There's trouble. It's not acute and small in front of me. It's everywhere. What's my response? We've had a couple of those. Guys, you know, if you live in other parts of the world, this would be common all the time. Christians, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, Christians in part of China, of course, Korea, North Korea, 
and India, they face trouble all the time. What does it look like when there's trouble all around us? Where's our mind going? You know, what are we thinking or what are we looking at or who are we looking to for help? That's the thought here. It's all over. There's no way to escape it. It's pervasive. <clears throat> Excuse me. Where's my trust? Where's my hope for deliverance? Am I fearful or am I confident? Uh, the psalmist in the midst, so it doesn't matter if it's a little snare, doesn't matter if it's a little blow, doesn't matter if it's a big attack, doesn't matter if it's going all, all over. The psalmist has this sublime sense that God is with me to deliver and protect me. And think of just a few examples of this in the Old Testament, the time under which this would have been thought of or written or true. Uh, 1 Samuel 17, you remember the, the famous, famous story of David and Goliath? And Goliath is this mountain of a man, and he's got sword and spear, and he keeps, he's threatening the armies of Israel every day. Nobody will go take him on. And David, the young shepherd boy, goes out, and you remember what he says? Uh, you come to me with a sword and a spear, but I come to you in the name of the living God, the Lord God. I'm coming in his name. What gave David the confidence to do that? He knew God was his deliverer. And he trusted God. He had a relationship with God, which comes up again in some of the verses that we'll see in just a minute. So he has this sublime confidence. God will take care of me. It doesn't matter what the adversary in front of me looks like, how big or how strong he is. God has my back, David and Goliath. Uh, there's another story in 2 Chronicles 32. I believe these are all on your study sheet. King Hezekiah, uh, this was a time in uh, Judah's history in which the Assyrian king Sennacherib and his army, they were the big boys on the block in this time period. And guys, they had demolished every army they'd come against. They'd overwhelmed every city they surrounded. And when this story occurs... Hezekiah is in Jerusalem, and perhaps one other city, Lachish, may not have fallen at this point. Jerusalem is alone in a sea of devastation because the Assyrians have come through. They've demolished everyone, not just outside of Judah, in Judah. Jerusalem is the last man standing when this story occurs. And so Sennacherib and the army come up and they tell, they tell Hezekiah and the Jews, guys, you're just like everybody else. We're here. We're going to take you down. And so listen to what Hezekiah does. He says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For there are more, now listen to this, there are more with us than with him. He is not talking about Jewish soldiers. This is a massive army that's outside their gates at this point. And he's not talking about human soldiers. With him, with the king of Assyria, is an arm of flesh, so he says, human power. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. You can read about this same thing in Isaiah 37. So the first thing Isaiah, or excuse me, Hezekiah did, he went into the temple and he prayed to God because he trusts in God. And then he sent his guys to Isaiah the prophet to see what God would say through his prophet, through Isaiah. And Isaiah tells them, don't worry, God's got this. You're not going to fire an arrow, nothing's going to come over the wall, and I'm going to lead them away, and you'll be just fine. So here's this, he has no human reason to have any confidence they'll be delivered. And he has no way of knowing what God will do, or how he will deliver. 
But God says, I'll do it. I'll take care of it. I'm good for it. And so they trust. They regain confidence. Uh, what do I need to trust God for? Uh, some, some of us will be in a time where we're challenged and we're not sure which end is up. Uh, when that's the case right now or next week or next month, what do I need to trust God for? What is outside my ability to control? What's a threat? What's a disappointment? What's outside my ability to control? What do I need to trust God for? Then look at verses 11 through 13. Uh, he'll command his angels concerning you. Uh, you'll tread on the lion and the adder. You got this image of uh, not only is God available 24-7, day or night, but it doesn't matter if the threat against you is like the strength of a lion or it's a hidden danger like a snake in the grass. God's, God's got it. Don't worry. And he'll send his angels to help you. So he's sending out angels or angel armies to protect his own. Um, we want to be careful when we get into this. Uh, you have some references on your study sheet. So some people make a big, big deal about angels, and uh, angels just say to themselves, we're just like you, we're just God's servants, so don't, don't bow down, don't treat us like... First Corinthians 6 says, you as Christians will sit in judgment on angels. Angels are not your superior, they're your inferior because you're in Christ and Christ is in you. But they are messengers and agents of God that are sent out when God deems that's the best way to answer someone's need for help. So uh, you've got Psalm 104 and Hebrews 1 at least on your study sheet as references for this. Uh, if you look at uh, in Acts, in two different places, angels freed the apostles in Acts 5 from prison. Peter was freed again by an angel in Acts 12. Uh, going back to the Old Testament, 2 Kings 6, this is one of the best stories along this line. Uh, probably well known. It's one of the stories the kids love. Um, 2 Kings 6, the Syrian army, they want to keep coming in, they want to get Israel, and they keep getting frustrated and the king of Syria says to his inner counsel he says man we got a traitor in the midst and a, a guy says guy it's king it's not anybody here it's this guy Elisha down there in Israel it's like he's here listening to you God tells him everything we're going to do you got to get rid of Elisha so Elisha and his servant go to the city of Dothan it's a walled city and the king of Syria, not Assyria, but Syria, knows they're there. And so he comes down with his army and he surrounds the city. And his servant is freaking out. Because he looks out, the city is surrounded. What are we to do? Woe is me. But you remember famously, Elisha says this to his servant. Don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. This would have been before Hezekiah. Hezekiah may have been thinking about this very story, a city surrounded by the enemy, when he said that same thing later in Chronicles. Uh, he said, uh, more with us than with them. Elisha prayed and said, oh Lord, please open his eyes, his servant's eyes, that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The hosts of heaven the angelic host were more numerous than was the army of the Syrians. Now, nobody else could see it, but Elisha could see it. And God answered his prayer, and his servant could see it. So God is pleased at times to use angels to accomplish his purposes. We don't pray to angels, and we certainly don't worship them. You'll see this repeated in the last chapters of Revelation. But God uses them 
as he chooses, sometimes direct intervention, of course, sometimes angelic help. We'll wind down on verses 14 through 16. Uh, this gets very personal because, verse 14, because, this is cause, because he, God speaking of the one who does this, because he holds fast to me in love, I'll deliver him, I'll protect him. And again, look at the pronouns, I will, I will, God speaking, I will. Who does God shelter and deliver? And while we say from scripture, uh, God loves the whole world, Jesus died for the sins of the world, the promises of God are generally true or dependably true for those in personal relationship with God, not more broadly. We'll cover this in just a second. In verse 9, it we read, because you've made the Lord your dwelling place, no evil will befall you. What's, what's the protection predicated on? A relationship with God. Here in verse 14, those who hold fast to God in love those who know him by name. Again, this is not academic, it's personal. So he says something that's broadly true, and then he says, that's true for me. And this can be true for you this way if you're in a personal relationship with the living God. Do we love God? Do we call on his name? The person loves the Lord. They're bound to God in the cords of love. They love God, and they know God loves them. This is all personal. Their trust is in God, and that's why they cling to him in faith. Again, this is why when, when the bottom falls out, who or what do I look to for help? That's usually an indication, objective indication of what my hope is. They know God by name. They have a personal relationship. He's not an unknown, impersonal God, but one that they love and they are bound to. In verse 15, the psalmist calls on God in his trouble. So we would say a couple things. Prayer should be, in Hezekiah's case, prayer was his response. He went before God and he prayed. Prayer should be our first response. And for us, who or what do we first turn to in trouble? Again, that's the application question. When the bottom falls out, when the threat rises, who or what am I turning to for help? You've probably known people who, uh, lots of people who are not in relationship with God will sort of throw up the desperation prayer when trouble hits, and it goes something like this. God, if you're really there, would you? Uh, God, other people have talked about you, and if you're really a reality, would you do this, or, or help me, or save me? Now, you know, on occasion, God answers those prayers. They're born of ignorance, but God can answer them, and sometimes he does, but he's not committed to the psalmist is pointing out God has a commitment born of love for those in relationship with him that isn't true of those outside. He uses causative words. Because he does this, God says, I will. So God may answer those prayers born of ignorance, but he's not committed to. But the psalmist is saying he's answering those prayers. He has a commitment, a level of commitment to those that are in relationship with him. And then verse 15 and 16, six times God says, I will to the psalmist's prayer. So the psalmist says, man, you're my hope, God. And six times, I will deliver, I will protect, I will answer, I will be with him in trouble, I'll rescue, I'll satisfy and show him my salvation. God says, basically, any way you need help, count on me, I've got this covered. Six times, God says, I will. Um, 
usually when trouble hits, the first thing we want to do is get out of it. We just want, uh, a guy used, used to listen to said, we want pain management. We just want the pain to go away. I want pain management. But oftentimes what's going on is that God is using the trouble we're facing in some formative way. That God's caused or allowed it because he's using it for us in some formative way. He wants more than just pain management. Direct prayers, excuse me, direct answers to direct prayers tend to be the exception, not the rule in life. But God allows these emergencies because apart from anything else, they often get our attention in ways nothing else does. I've got a need or I've got an element of pain or frustration in my life that's so acute that I can't think about anything else. This has my attention. And when that happens, God has my attention. Everything else falls away. God, what am I going to do? Where am I going to turn? What will you do for me? How should I think about this? Etc. I'll give a couple of examples here. I, I'm avoiding names. I don't have permission, but this is broadly known anyway. One of our daughters uh, suffered through years as she was growing up with a condition we just could not get pinned down. And uh, it was so funny because when the, uh, when, when the issue was finally found and we saw this doctor, he said, do you never take your children to see the doctor? And we're like, you have no idea how many, how many doctors we've seen and how many years we've tried to pursue this issue. So basically at the end of the day, an MRI was done and we never see the doctor we're headed for. We're just told uh, your, your daughter has a life-ending congenital challenge and she needs surgery and she, she needs it now. And so uh, the doctor's visits and the hospital scenes, that started the ball rolling for us. She was a young lady, an adolescent young teenager at the time. So Mike's looking for comfort, right? I've got something I can't control, and this is my daughter and her life, and she's already got issues that are going to be with her the rest of her life from this. And so I'm praying, and I'm praying Psalm 18, and I was sharing it with her too. And we were sort of learning uh, portions out of this because Psalm 18, it's also at the end of 1 Samuel, it's this uh, prayer, it's David's experience where God came in and helped him. You know, he's in trouble. Um, one of the phrases, he reached from on high. Here I am down here in all my trouble. And the text says, David wrote, God reached from on high and he took me. He delivered me out of many waters. He saved me from my enemies. They were too strong for me, not too strong for God. So I'm encouraging myself and my daughter from Psalm 18. Well, Kathy and one of my other daughters was up late one night <clears throat> during this period. And uh, they were talking about this and they were concerned. And so they opened their Bible at random and it fell open to Psalm 91. And so that became their psalm for this time of life where hospitals and doctors and trying to figure things out. I think it was three, three different surgeries needed to, needed to follow up. And so we were looking for confidence. Lord, we got a problem. We can't solve it. There's medical intervention, but we don't know what that'll look like. We don't know if it'll be successful. Would you come in? We're building our faith and our confidence. Now, could, could God have allowed my daughter to die? Absolutely. Um, years ago, we knew a family from a church here in Topeka. They had a little girl, not unlike my little girl's, and she had cancer, and I think she didn't live to see her third birthday. And it, it was a train wreck for this family. You can imagine, your, your child's been there long enough, you're, you're connected. And God allowed that little, little girl to die of her cancer. 
And that was the same loving God that spared our daughter's life and, you know, have some surgeries and life goes on. You know, that's the big picture. Why God this and not that? We don't always have those. But we wanted to encourage our own confidence. Lord, we want to have our eyes on you. And those Psalms were hugely helpful to that. Think also of the short story in Matthew 8, and I sort of want to wind down on this. Uh, is there a time or a place that you are apart as a Christian from God's, not only his presence, but his keeping care? Um, you know, you can't get to a place God isn't. Uh, you're his child by faith. The Holy Spirit's in you. You not only can't get away from God, every place you'd run, God is with you. You know, it's Psalm 139 on steroids. Because he's not just with you, he's in you. Every place you go, God's there. So we count on that. You can't get away from that. In Matthew 8, Jesus is with his fellows in a boat. So he's with them. He's not someplace else. He's not far away. He's right beside them. And guys, these are sailors, and they know what they're doing. And they're in a boat at night on the Sea of Galilee. And it says the waves are washing in over the sides of the boat. These seasoned sailors and fishermen think we are going down. We are dying tonight in the sea that we call our home and fish from. And so they wake Jesus up, and they say, we're perishing. And you remember what Jesus says? Why are you afraid? I'm here. You remember, he, he just speaks, and he stills, he calms the waves and the sea. And they're like, who is this we're in the boat with? Who's in this? But that's exactly, that's, that's your life and mine. If you know Christ... He is always with you. You can't get to a place he isn't. We're in the boat. He's in the boat. The waves come over. He's with us. We could still say, uh, Jesus, would you mind waking up? Would you mind speaking to the sea? But we don't have to be afraid because he's with us. So nothing that's coming into your life is coming in apart from Jesus being with you. Verse 14 again, I'll deliver, I'll protect, I'll answer, I'll be with him, I'll rescue him. Uh, today, we have the promises of Jesus to always be with us, never leave us. God isn't so much a presence above us casting a protective shadow, but the power and presence and spirit of God with us. This is not primarily or just life's troubles. We've been saved from sin's penalty and power, from Satan and death to eternal life in Christ's presence. And that's the big thing for us today, guys. Life is short. doesn't matter how long you live. Life is short. Who do you know and where are you going that, that matters forever? So what challenges do we face today? And if you say, you know what, right now life is really swell. I have no, no big problems. That's fine. Remember Psalm 91 for the future. Uh, we put that in our basket. Lord, that's a psalm that I'll read in the future when I need to be reminded of your keeping care. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, and I think for Christians especially, this is as important as Psalm 91 you remember Paul prayed three times. Paul is God's man. He's doing God's mission. And what's he get for his trouble? He gets heartache and rejection and imprisonments and beatings and you name it. And so he just asked God for a little help. Hey, Lord, I got this condition and I'd really love it. Would you just take this away from me? You remember the text says he asked God three times, would you just take care of this? And God says, no, I won't. I won't because I, you've seen things. You have been privileged in a way that, whether you know it or not, you're going to be tempted to be proud in ways that you can't and shouldn't. And so I'm doing what's in your best in interest, 
by leaving this aggravating, painful thing in your life because you need it. Not because I don't love you, but because I do love you. And God says to him, in that situation, uh, power is perfected in weakness. And so Paul says, so now then I'll boast about my weakness. God's bringing that about too for my good. He's not delivering me from the thing I asked deliverance from, but he's telling me, he's told me specifically, it's still for my benefit. It's not for any lack of motivation on his part. It's because he loves me. He's preserving me through this and he's keeping my attitude in the place it needs to be. So even if that, if God allows us to keep going through challenging times, we can have confidence. God is using his strength, his power in our weakness, and that's still a good thing too. So we're not being lost. Evil's not gaining the day. God's using it in a redemptive way. Well, if you would, stand with me, and we'll read from Romans 8, uh, verse 31, and then verses 35 through 37 to close out. Read with me, please. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all